Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. For this Wednesday, February 10th, I'm Andrea Linares. Day two of the Senate trial of former President Donald Trump opening up after an emotional first day of arguments. Lawmakers describing the chaos and violence of the Capitol siege while the ex-president's attorneys stumble in their opening arguments. As coronavirus variants continue to spread throughout the U.S., a major vaccine push on the horizon. Could we slowly be turning the tide on the pandemic? And along the U.S.-Mexico border, a surge in activity as the Biden administration makes arrangements for widespread testing of migrants crossing that dividing line. A closer look today on U News. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. begin today with former President Donald Trump's impeachment trial. Opening arguments are underway after an emotional first day that took senators and the nation back to that deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol in January. Janet Rodriguez is following the second day of the trial very closely and has the very latest on this. Janet, what are we hearing today? Well, Andrea, the Democrats started making their case about an hour ago, and they have told us that they will divide their arguments in three parts, that being the provocation, the attack, and the actual harm. They're making the argument that President Trump started planting the seed last spring when he started telling his supporters that if he lost the elections, it would be because of fraud, because the elections would have been stolen. And I quote, that fraud, says the argument, or the impeachment, or um, the impeachment, lawyers, uh, the, the Democrats, are the drumbeat of the, that inspire, instigate, and ignite the base, the mob, basically making the case that the president's words were the ones that ignited that mob that came to Washington and to the Capitol on January 6th. They go further to say that the evidence will show that President Trump was no innocent bystander, that they will, that he knew that the participants of uh, that march on January 6th were well prepared and that he knew what they were capable of, that he saw it coming. Let's hear a little bit of what Jamie Raskin, the lead impeachment manager, had to say about this. He watched it on TV like a reality show. He reveled in it. And he did nothing to help us as commander-in-chief. Instead, he served as the inciter-in-chief, sending tweets that only further incited the rampaging mob. He made statements lauding and sympathizing with the insurrectionists. And they have described former President Trump as a man who praised and cultivated violence. They have actually used some of his tweets and um, passed a speech before January 6th to prove their point. They're also telling us that they will show very violent videos today, images from security cameras that have not been seen before to prove their point as to how violent those incidents were on January 6th and how close the mob got to Congress people to senators to staff of the Capitol and they say that as of now the president doesn't have any credible constitutional defense they have 16 hours to um, to argue their points between today and tomorrow now the defense for President Trump those two lawyers who are defending him would take the stand on Friday to start presenting their case their case will be mostly on the constitutionality of this trial 
Now, we do believe or we do know from reporting that President Trump has not been happy from the performance of his lawyers thus far, but this is expected to last for at least another five days before next week there will be a vote on whether President Trump will be uh, guilt is guilty or not of insurrecting or bringing violence to the Capitol. The challenge here for these Democrats presenting their case today is to convince at least 17 Republicans. He, six of them believe that, that this trial is constitutional, but 17 would need to vote with the Democrats to convict the president and find him guilty. It's an uphill climb at the moment. Thank you, Janet. We know that you'll be following this very closely from Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, day one of the impeachment trial against the former president left many people stunned. As we just heard, on one hand, you had House Democrats presenting graphic images of that January 6 attack on the Capitol and turning Trump's own words against him. On the other hand, the defense team struggled and even appeared disorganized. House prosecutors relying heavily on video evidence to present their impeachment case against former President Trump. Our case is based on cold, hard facts. It's all about the facts. On day one of the trial, showing a chilling preview of their strategy. This graphic 13-minute video forcing lawmakers to relive the moments rioters stormed the Capitol on January 6. We're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. House impeachment manager Jamie Raskin recounting his personal experience that day. His daughter was in the Capitol, too. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. <laughs> Meanwhile, Trump's lawyers were supposed Patriots to be arguing first. that since their they client has country. already left office, they the trial is unconstitutional. But sources say the former president is fuming over his legal team's dismal debut. I saw a headline, Representative so-and-so seeks to walk back comments about I forget what it was. Attorney Bruce Castor taking to the floor first for the defense, delivering a nearly hour-long rambling and sometimes baffling speech, at one point even praising the Democrats. I'll be quite frank with you. We changed what we were going to do on account that we thought that the House manager's presentation was well done. But by the time his second attorney, David Schoen, stepped in to make their case, many senators were already confused. Some Senate Republicans calling the day a disaster. Trial by the Senate sitting as a court of impeachment is reserved for the president of the United States, not a private citizen who used to be president of the United States. Six GOP senators ultimately joining Democrats to vote that the impeachment trial is constitutional. Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy becoming the only Republican to switch his vote on the constitutionality of the trial.
Also, Trump's impeachment lawyer Bruce Castor suggested that Trump doesn't need to be impeached because the country already voted him out of office, saying, quote, American voters are smart enough to pick a new administration, acknowledging Biden's victory over the former president. Just stunning. And joining us now is Steven Nuno Perez. He's a political science professor at Northern Arizona University. Thank you so much for being with us today, Stephen. Welcome to U News. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So what was your takeaway from yesterday and what are you looking for today as all this unfolds? Well, you know, I mean, dismal performances have not dissuaded Trumpers from voting from Trump. I mean, we have 450,000 people have died over the last year. Uh, the economy has, has suffered greatly over the last year. Um, having a, an argument based on facts or on dismal performances is not going to dissuade uh, Trump Republicans uh, to, uh, you know, to convict. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of an emotional appeal uh, to voters where the Democrats are going to essentially try to make a case uh, not not only on the facts, but also on uh, the sense of patriotism, uh, the emotion of what it means to have insurrectionists trying to overturn an election. And as Biden becomes more and more entrenched as president in, in the minds of, of, of society, you know, as the minds of, of American society, um, I think this will have uh, is the better chance uh, that the Democrats have and maybe peel off a couple more Republicans. Now, only six Republican senators voted with Democrats on the trial's constitutionality. What does that tell you about where this trial is heading? Will we be able to reach those 17 Republican votes necessary in order to convict Trump? Um, I'd be very surprised if, if the Democrats can make an argument that's going to uh, convince enough senators that um, support for Trump, you know, Trump as the Republican Party, um, is waning. Uh, until that happens, if the polling starts showing that um, Republicans uh, support or Trump Republican support uh, is waning, that, then maybe there's a shot. Um, and I think that's what a lot of these arguments are going to be based on, is trying to convince those uh, Republicans, you know, to, you know, uh, to help their senators make this decision. Um, I just don't see it. I haven't seen it in the last four years. And I don't uh, expect to see it in the future. Now let's talk about Senator McConnell, who voted against the constitutionality of the trial. What's your reaction to that? What does that say about his political calculations moving forward? Yeah, it seems McConnell is, you know, he's in this position where he's trying to, um, you know, in one sense, you know, stand up for decorum uh, and in another sense, uh, stand up for uh, and support the, the senators in his caucus that depend on these Republican, uh, you know, senators. Um, who are going to uh, run in a primary. And, you know, we see across the country, any Republican that steps uh, steps out of line is going to be censored by the party, um, which is going to be detrimental to their, you know, re-election hopes. Um, so McConnell's in the, you know, he's, he's been walking a tightrope uh, for, for a long time now, and this is no different. Let's talk about day two of the trial, which is taking place today as we speak. What will be the House manager's role in making their case to senators and also to the American people? Yeah, I think their role is to really is to make this appeal of uh, this very kind of emotional appeal. We know that facts don't matter. Um, and what what does matter, though, is, is an appeal to the emotion and to the psyche of the American public that this was indeed an insurgent and that it was indeed as a consequence of uh, the pres former president's behavior. 
House managers have to show cause and effect here. When it comes to President Trump's words and actions, is that a tough case to prove? No, I don't think it's a tough case to prove at all. I mean, I think the, the hardest case to make is not so much cause and effect, but it is the case to make that there is an is to Republican voters that this is what is going on and that this is going to damage uh, Republicans in the future. Trump is no longer in power. So um, I think if, if the Democrats can show that this is going to tarnish uh, former President Trump, um, I think that's probably the best avenue that they have. Um, you know, the case that Donald Trump spent, you know, a, a month and a half, uh, two months um, assaulting our electoral system and trying to delegitimize it um, and then having that connected to uh, to this is it, that's that's a slam dunk. What is not a slam dunk is trying to prove to the American people that this was an insurgency. It was unpatriotic. It was something that should be admonished uh, by not only the public, um, but by Republicans as well. They have to essentially be shamed into uh, into doing the right thing. Now, that argument on the trial's constitutionality is now moot since the majority voted that the trial is constitutional. So will Trump's legal strategy have to shift given that vote? And we saw they did not have a very good day yesterday. I mean, it was it was a horrible day uh, for, for them. I mean, you know, again, I, I don't think any of that matters. Right. I, I think the Democrats need to concentrate on on, you know, damaging the the, you know, and tarnishing the, the reputation of what it means to be a Republican if they stick with Donald Trump. Um, if they can do that, then then they have a shot. Um, this is not about, this is really not going to be about facts. I mean, we know the facts. The Democrats will lay that out, and it will be competently done. Um, but what really is the goal here is, is really trying to tarnish what Donald Trump means to the Republican Party. And if the Republicans start to feel like they can't win, uh, you know, congressional seats or Senate seats in 2022 because of this, you know, this reputation, then we might see, you know, some Republicans peeling off. Unless we see that, we're, you know, we see a very strong, uh, you know, Trump, you know, tr Trump supporters. Um, they're going to be the loudest in the primaries. Um, and that's really what's concerning uh, Republicans right now. Well, thank you so much for so much insight, Professor Steven Nuno Perez of Northern Arizona University. Have a great day. My pleasure. Thank you. Meanwhile, in Georgia, Fulton County prosecutors have initiated a criminal investigation into former President Trump's January phone call to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger asking him to find votes. A recording of that stunning one-hour call was made public, further incriminating the former president. In that recording, Trump is heard urging Raffensperger to, quote, find enough votes to overturn the state's November general election results. The Georgia Secretary of State's office has also launched a separate investigation into former President Trump's attempts to overturn the state's election results two days ago. And now back on Capitol Hill, the latest coronavirus relief package under consideration in the House would make health care more affordable for some Americans. The bill from Representative Richard Neal would increase Affordable Care Act subsidies for two years. During that same period, it would lower costs for middle class Americans who earn too much to receive financial assistance now. Under the plan, enrollees wouldn't pay more than 8.5 percent of their income for health insurance 
veterans. Those changes would be part of President Biden's relief package, temporarily fulfilling a campaign promise. Meanwhile, confirmation hearings are set for Judge Merrick Garland. President Joe Biden's nomination for attorney general will appear in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on February 22nd and 23rd. Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin says he expects Garland to be confirmed swiftly. Garland was nominated by then-President Barack Obama for the U.S. Supreme Court following the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. However, Republicans, led by then-Majority Leader, Leader Mitch McConnell stalled for months and refused to hold confirmation hearings or a vote on the nomination. And the Biden administration is reviewing whether it can take steps to provide student debt relief through executive action, even as it continues to call on Congress to pass legislation to help borrowers and their families. Joining us now to talk about Biden's student loans agenda is Anna Hilhoski. She's a student loan expert at NerdWallet, and that's a personal finance website. Thank you so much for being with us today, Anna. Thanks for having me. So where does President Biden stand on student loan debt forgiveness? Sure. So while on the campaign trail, Biden proposed $10,000 in forgiveness per federal student loan borrower. According to a NerdWall analysis, there are nearly 15 million borrowers with loan amounts under $10,000. So his proposal could get rid of their debt completely. Um, but earlier this month, Democratic lawmakers reintroduced a pair of resolutions calling on Biden to cancel $50,000 of student debt per borrower. It echoed a proposal that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Elizabeth Warren made last fall. Now, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki affirmed Biden's support for some kind of cancellation made by Congress for COVID relief, but didn't promise any kind of executive action. Now, there are several arguments for and against student debt forgiveness. Can you give us a couple of examples? Sure. So um, I guess for student loan forgiveness is obviously to relieve a whole lot of borrowers who are really struggling right now. Student loan debt was a crisis in America before the economic effects of the pandemic even began. So nearly 45 million Americans carry an average of close to $29,000 in student loan debt. That's about 17% of all adults over the age of 18 in the United States. But there's also some, uh, some arguments against it uh, that would mainly be around, uh, well, I had to pay for off my student loans, so why shouldn't somebody else? So we don't really know if student loan forgiveness is going to happen. But there does seem to be some appetite among lawmakers whose constituents are burdened with student loan debt. Now, would all student loan borrowers benefit from loan forgiveness? And what about private borrowers? We were just seeing on the screen, we had several bullet points that described who would be eligible. That indicated one of these points, an individual would have to earn less than $125,000 a year. Sure. So neither proposal was specific, but if you are talking about federal student loan borrowers, that would mean everybody. So even those with Parent PLUS loans or graduate loans. So it's also really unclear. Um, based on Biden's proposal, he had had a couple of different ones, right? So he had uh, also proposed that there might be some kind of a, um, a means test uh, happening there, but it, nothing's been specified yet, so we're really not sure. What we do know is that private student loan borrowers are pretty much left out of this. They also weren't included in any kind of coronavirus relief, coronavirus relief packages through Congress. Um, and some of the programs that private lenders have offered have already sunsetted. So it doesn't look good for forgiveness for private student loan borrowers. 
Now, why do you think student loan debt is at the top of Biden's economic agenda? I mean, how bad is the problem of student debt in our country? Well, again, because it affects so many people. Um, so like, that 45 million number is, is, is quite large. Um, what could happen uh, and, and would be great um, would be to really help student loan borrowers who are disproportionately affected. Um, we know that women, for example, hold nearly two thirds of outstanding student loan debt in the United States and a disproportionate number of these borrowers are women of color. Does student debt exacerbate racial inequality? What would you say? Well, I think that that's something that is kind of being debated right now because there is this disproportionate amount of borrowers who uh, are people of color. So nearly 85% of black, black bachelor's degree recipients have student loan debt compared with, uh, I think it's around two thirds of white bachelor's degree holders. Very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Anna, student loans expert at NerdWallet. Take care. Confidence in COVID-19 vaccines growing in the U.S. The majority of Americans now saying they will get vaccinated. This as the White House promises to further increase the weekly delivery of doses to states. Lorraine Caceres has the latest. Vaccination efforts making promising progress. About one in 10 Americans now vaccinated. The CDC reporting almost 33 million people have gotten at least one dose and about 10 million are now fully inoculated. So far, 63 million doses have been distributed of those 43 million administered and the public's confidence growing. A new Gallup poll showing more than 71% of Americans say they will get vaccinated up from 65% in December. New York City ramping up outreach efforts to motivate and inform minority communities. Across the nation, CVS and Walgreens will begin vaccinating on Friday, but in Florida, the governor taking it a step further. Today is a, is a great day because we're announcing the expansion of vaccine availability in the state of Florida. And as you might uh, see, uh, see that will be expanding to Walmarts all across the state of Florida beginning at the end of this week. But despite the progress in vaccine access, states still struggling with supply. Supply is the issue. That's the constraint. So when you ask me, what are we doing to vaccinate this group, that group? What about this group? What about that group? It's an issue now of scarcity. It's an issue of supply. The White House now promising even a bigger increase in weekly deliveries and also announcing starting next week, vaccines will be sent out directly to community health centers. We will increase weekly vaccine doses going to states, tribes and territories to 11 million. So that is a total of a 28% increase in vaccine supply across the first three weeks. I know Americans are eager to get vaccinated and we're working with manufacturers to increase the supply of vaccines as quickly as possible. And the CEO of Johnson & Johnson says that people will probably need a COVID-19 vaccine every year in order to keep up with new variants. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is still not been approved by the FDA. They've applied recently for emergency use authorization. And if they are approved, it will be in uh, distribution by March 1st. Andrea, back to you. Pretty much what we already deal with with the yearly flu. Thanks so much, Lorraine, for that report. More of you news after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. In immigration news, a father who spent eight months in federal immigration custody has been released and reunited with his family at their home on New York's Long Island. Sukhdev Singh illegally immigrated from India to the U.S. in the 1990s. After his application for political asylum was denied, he was ordered to leave in 1999, but he stayed and had to check in with the government periodically. ICE agents arrested him for deportation at his home in June. He was held in immigration jails in Louisiana and then New Jersey. His attorney credits the sudden release to the change in presidential administrations. Further south in Texas, U.S. Customs and Border Protection is opening a temporary processing facility in the city of Donna to expand processing capacity. The agency announced the release in a Tuesday press statement. CBP described it as a facility meant to safely process individuals in U.S. custody. It is supposed to be weatherproof, climate controlled and, quote, expected to provide ample areas for eating, sleeping and personal hygiene. The facility is 160,000 square feet in size and occupies occupies 45 acres. It was built to provide capacity while the centralized processing center in McAllen, Texas undergoes renovation. And along the border in Texas, a new policy to test migrants crossing over from Mexico. Pedro Rojas has more from the city of McAllen. Well, the mass liberations of migrants continue here on the southern border, specifically in the South Texas border. According to local authorities, they have received at least in the city of McAllen over 700 migrants in the last seven to eight days. And that means that the government is slowly increasing the amount of families and pregnant mothers that are being released in this region. They, may, they mostly come to this bus station. They're released right here and they come across the street into a shelter that is run by Catholic charities. Now, what all of this has happened, the Border Patrol also started using a mass tent that they built in the city of Donna, Texas, between Brownsville and McAllen. And that is the new process in sending for the McAllen station. There is where the families and the unaccompanied minors are being taken to be processed prior to arrive to this bus station. Now, not only this is occurring right down here in South Texas, we just heard that also in El Paso, Texas, federal government has given to local humanitarian groups thousands of rapid COVID tests in preparation for what many, many already described the arrival of a mass migrant wave in the region. This means that the government is sort of preparing for this. Now, there is not official statement coming from the government. The government has said that what they are doing is right now is looking for signs of the illness among the migrants that they are releasing. Those that are, any, are showing any sign of illness are being properly treated and taken to a quarantine hotels that have been established, at least in the South Texas. At least there are two hotels in this region for them. But the government hasn't said what's going to happen with the thousands of migrants that were sent back under the MPP program or what's going to happen with the migrants that keep coming. Now, what we know is the Mexican government has changed the rules of the game and they are no longer accepting as of now families with children that are being arrested after they cross the U.S.-Mexico border. This is what's happening here in the South Texas border. Now, back to you.
Thank you, Pedro, for that report. And also along the border, a recent surge in those crossing over from Mexico has led to new rules that could have a major impact on trade. Gianni Aponte explains what lies ahead. These images were taken a few days ago on the Rio Grande by the border between Eagle Pass, Texas and Piedras Negras, Coahuila, Mexico. Small groups of migrants take advantage of the shallow waters to cross into the United States. And although U.S. Border Patrol agents are waiting to stop them on the other side, they keep crossing. It's a snapshot of an increase in illegal crossings that has made U.S. authorities decide to reduce even commercial rail transport. Se limitaría los cruces. Train crossings from Mexico to the United States via Piedras Negras, Eagle Pass, would be limited, complying with an order, a mandate from the customs authorities to allow 10 hours of the crossings. The two countries plan to only allow goods to cross the border for five hours in the morning and five hours in the afternoon during daylight hours. The concern is the increase of migrants on the railroads. It is estimated that more than 2,000 migrants are stranded in Piedras Negras alone, waiting for their U.S. asylum decision, and in the last few days, deportations by land have increased to more than 200 per day. Confusion reigns among the migrants. Many people say they are letting people in, and other people say they are not, so we don't know what is going on. Because we are going to work to help this country move forward and to better ourselves. The reduction of train crossings will begin February 12th. This border point has become a crossing heavily used by migrants. Images like this one were common in 2020. And this year there have already been 14 migrants killed at this border, most of them drowned. Even if they don't come in caravans to avoid the publicity in the media or whatever the government say, people will continue to enter in smaller groups. Reported by Jessica Zermeño, this is Gianni Aponte for U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.